Are we supposed to get married? I'm going to just swipe left. I just want somebody to share my life with. I think a relationship is a story that two people tell together about who they are as a pair. You can keep waiting for the fairy tale, or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you read my advice in the LA Times, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Damona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another thrilling episode of Dates and Mates. I don't have to tell you, the rules of dating have changed. (laughs) I know, you know it. And I have been shouting it from the rooftop for over 10 years now on this podcast. And while many of our grandparents and parents adhered to strict gender roles and monogamy roles and typical relationship timelines, you know, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. They still say these, by the way. (laughs) The kids still say these. These rhymes, but they are no longer true because today we are building relationships that suit our lifestyles. So here's an example. Non-monogamy, it's on the rise. Since last year, there's been a 42% increase in mentions of ENM or ethical non-monogamy on OkCupid profiles. I've also seen an increase in the number of married couples who live apart together. This means these are folks in committed relationships who live in separate homes. And according to the Census Bureau, the percentage of people in these LAT relationships living apart together, they grew by more than 25% between 2000 and 2019. I say, thank goodness, people are saying, F the fairy tale. I'm going to choose my own dating adventure. And based on my inbox, you all have a lot of questions on how to make your relationship dream a reality even if it includes a non-traditional arrangement. So I brought in the big dog today. The Dan Savage is here with us. He is the host of the Savage Love cast and the long-running column, Savage Love. And he and I will be talking about writing the rules of your own relationship. And he will stick around to answer some of your questions in love with me today. But first... I got a hot headline for you. A new study says if you clap when planes land, your partner may break up with you. So now I'm wondering, am I screwed? (laughs) I'm one of those people. (laughs) Then later, Dan Savage and I will answer your questions, including I put so much pressure on myself to find a guy that meets my standards. I think I'm hindering myself from finding my match. And even though I want to be sexually open, I find myself getting attached to flings. All right, strap on your seatbelts, folks. I said seatbelts, okay? (laughs) You got all excited when I said strap. (laughs) But friends, it's time for the dish. These dating dish. A new study reports if you clap when planes land, your partner may break up with you. Uh, personally, I feel personally attacked. (laughs) But, like, the numbers speak for themselves. A study commissioned by the dating site Seeking surveyed 2,000 adults, and over half, 65% of them, have ended a relationship because of an ick. And 88% of them have ghosted someone completely. What is an ick, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. (laughs) It is a specific and possibly non-conventional trait that turns someone off. So I will use it in a sentence. They gave me the ick. (laughs) When someone you're dating gives you the ick, usually your whole opinion of them changes and you can't see past the ick. So according to the survey, here are some examples of icks and how they rank in awfulness in dating. Smelling bad is the number one ick. That was 24% who said that. That is the worst ick. The number two ick is being obsessed with star signs, which I find hilarious considering we just did episode all about astrology and how um, I really utilize it in my personal life and how it's super helpful in finding love. And like, let's be real. It's all over dating apps. Like if it didn't matter, why would it be one of the choices of how to define yourself on the dating app? Okay. Obviously I'm like, hella triggered by this article. (laughs) The number three ick was clapping when a plane lands. Hmm. Uh, 14% said that. 14% of men said they would break it off with someone who wanted to share food on a first date. Y'all, I am out. Like, I, I have failed. I have massively failed the dating ick quiz if this is what people are being judged upon today. Uh, 
16% of women said wearing a tacky watch was an ick. Y'all, I don't even know what a tacky watch is. (laughs) 15% of women judge someone for referring to their favorite sports team as if they were a part of the actual team. Okay, that one's funny. 21% for pretending to be more knowledgeable about something than they really are. Isn't that everyone? Doesn't everyone do that? 21% for being rude to waiters. Okay, now we are getting somewhere because I like that last ick. Some of the other icks, though, I'm going to pick apart. But I wanted to just tell you first some interesting poll stats because over half of the people thought they had given someone else the ick themselves. And 35% believe there's no such thing as too picky when out on the dating scene. So... I just wanted to break that down a little bit because I'm seeing a lot of ick behavior. We'll just call it. I'm seeing reactions to ick behavior that are concerning me. And I feel like we are we are now dating so much more than prior generations. There are just many more dating options on the table. So we start to get confused about what we're looking for and put certain traits and qualities up front as like, this is a deal breaker. This is a red flag. And yet when I step back as a dating coach, who's been doing this for over 15 years, I can't, I cannot see, I'm sorry, but I cannot see the correlation between if someone claps on a plane when it lands and if that person is going to be a good partner for you in a relationship. I don't see the correlation. Maybe that's because sometimes I clap. I do. I do. It depends. Like, it depends on if it's a good landing. You guys know I fly a lot. (laughs) Actually, my daughter said I was being too judgy about a landing that I thought was a little bit rough. But okay, I don't I don't fly planes. I just I'm just a passenger here. And so similarly, I'm just a passenger in your dating, your dating journey. Okay, but I want to tell you what I see out there and what I think might be more helpful. And I just see way too much negativity. I'm seeing it on my Instagram all the time too, at Damona Hoffman, by the way. But I'm seeing like when I post dating tips, people are like, oh, there's no good men. Oh, well, I can't even find one who's like that. Oh, well, everyone on a dating app is a liar and a cheater and a whatever. Oh, well, half of them aren't real profiles. Why are we doing this, you guys? Why are we doing this to ourselves? (laughs) Because it's... As soon as you let that negativity overtake your dating process, you're done. There's nowhere to go from that. So, okay, the body odor thing, it's kind of science. There is a lot of research in how people's smells affect attraction. And by the way, if you're on birth control, I don't know if you've heard, but your your reading of smells and pheromones may be skewed. And you may be attracted to different things and turned off by different smells. But that's a whole other conversation. We are now looking at all of these little micro factors that don't really add up to true compatibility. What I would like to see is people getting the ick from those without empathy, people who put them down, people who cancel dates last minute, ick, people who ghost only to pop back up and start texting them. Ick, people who resort to name calling and insults and fights and violent people. Why are we making excuses for that? I'm like, oh, but they're really nice to me. Oh, but they they're really cute. Oh, well, they they went to a great school or uh, their sister's really nice or what? Why are we making excuses for those people when we should be saying ick to those qualities? Why aren't we saying ick to people who prefer New York-style pizza to deep-dish Chicago-style? Haha, <laughs> gotcha there. <laughs> okay, I'm a Midwesterner forever. <laughs> but if my relationship can survive pizza differences, my husband is from New York, and he's been pushing this flat, slide-off-the-crust the pizza on my children since they were on solid foods. But we, we are okay. So if we can make it, You can set aside something that isn't a true ick and pursue the four true factors of long-term compatibility, and that is common goals, shared values, clear communication, and trust. That's it. It's those four. It's those four pillars. I'll talk all about it in my book when it's out next year, but 
those are the icks you should be looking for, not whether or not they clap at airplane landings. All right, this plane is about to take off, folks. When we come back, Dan Savage of the Savage Lovecast will be here with me to help you design the rules of your relationship and answer your love questions with me. Lovers, I got to tell you about Green Chef. Do you know what is Green Chef? Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company. Green Chef makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or like me, like all of the above, (laughs) and you're looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef, they offer a range of recipes to suit your preferences. And they've expanded their menu. So now you can choose from 30 recipes weekly with the option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box without changing your plan. Like, you can be vegan one day, keto the next, you can be paleo, and then maybe your husband is a vegetarian. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) So we switch it up, and you can too. Green Chef has options for every lifestyle. Keto and paleo, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and gluten-free. And Green Chef's pre-made and pre-measured sauces, dressings, and spices make keeping a healthier lifestyle even easier. Put the time you save on meal prep towards achieving your 2023 relationship goals. And I'll tell you what, my husband and I love making Green Chef meals together. It is such a great date activity. We get to work on our communication and teamwork. We get to show care for one another. And we get to enjoy something that we made together. And you know, my schedule is crazy busy. So I really appreciate that Green Chef meals can be made quickly and have simple, easy to follow directions so I don't have to work all day and then do more work in the kitchen when I come home. And this is really special, y'all, because they have an insane offer for Dates and Mates listeners. If you go to greenchef.com slash datesandmates60 and you use the code datesandmates60, you will get 60% off plus free shipping. I'm going to read this one more time because this is the number one meal kit for eating well and this is quite an offer to get you started. Go to greenchef.com slash datesandmates60 and use the code datesandmates60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. I would drop the mic right here, but it's on a stand. So you get the point. Come join me. Come join Green Chef. Let's eat well together. Look for the link in the show notes. Welcome back. Dan Savage is an author, media pundit, journalist, and LGBTQ community activist. He is the author of Savage Love, a sex advice column, which first appeared in The Stranger, Seattle's alternative weekly paper in 1991. And now it is a syndicated column all across the United States and Canada. Dan is also the host of the fantastic podcast, The Savage Lovecast, where he answers your sex questions and talks politics. And he's the author of multiple books, including His most recent one, Savage Love from A to Z, Advice on Sex and Relationships, Dating and Mating, Exes and Extras. Please help me give big smooches to Dan Savage. Hey. Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe you are here on Dates and Mates. I always say, Dan, I've been doing the show for 10 years, which I feel like a podcasting, I don't want to say dinosaur because I don't want to like associate (laughs) Oh my god, if you're a dinosaur, what am I? I'm like I'm like a molten planet with no life forms on it yet. You you are the big bang, really. You are just <laughs> like you were the inception of so many things. And personally, I just have to thank you for your Savage Love column because my husband has been a reader for ages. And, you know, he learned a few things from you, Dan. <laughs> well, well, you're welcome. You owe me 10% of your orgasms then going <laughs> Going forward. <laughs> I'm not sure how to pay that. Is there a Venmo or something like an orgasm Venmo? We'll figure it out. But I can't believe you've been doing Savage Love since 1991. Yeah, I started writing Savage Love, my sex advice column in 1991. So my sex advice column predates the the internet and the Clinton administration. It's, it's elderly. I, I've actually it's gotten elderly. letters from people 
who told me unnecessarily that their parents were reading my sex advice column before they were born. And they are an adult writing to me for sex advice now. And I say that's unnecessary because I don't want to think about how old I am or how long I've been doing this. And I don't like it when my readers remind me. No, you are experienced. And that's really what matters. It's the it's the experience. And I imagine a lot has shifted for you. What do you feel like is the biggest change in dating and relationships since you began this work? You know, when I first started writing Savage Love, half the questions would begin or end with, am I normal? And I don't get that question anymore, and I'm really glad of it. I think people have finally gotten used to the idea or it's gotten into everyone's heads that no one is normal, that we're all a bit we're all individuals and very, very different. There was this tremendous pressure that people were placed under and then placed on themselves at a certain point to conform and be normative when it came to desire and relationships uh, and who they were supposed to be. And so someone who was, people who would write and ask me if they were normal usually weren't, usually were doing something or wanted something or having a relationship in a different way than they thought they were supposed to, and they wanted to be reassured that they were normal. And what they use, I think what they often meant by am I normal was, is this okay? Uh, and that's a very different question. And it has a very different kind of other focused answer. If you're not hurting anyone, if it's consensual, if you're being honest, if you're not being manipulative, if you're not lying by omission or commission, then it, it's okay. And as for normal, you know, a few years ago, they did a study in the UK where they tried to uh, measure paraphilias or kinks. And literally the definition of paraphilia is non-normative desire. And what they found was the majority of people had a paraphilia, which means non-normative desire is normative, <laughs> which means non-normative desire ain't non-normative. It is actually normative. So the odder you are, the more unique you are about your relationships or what you want, uh, in intimacy. Paradoxically, we discovered years and years and years after I finally managed to reassure everyone that they that they were indeed normal, we find out that everyone's technically not. <laughs> it's funny because as you said that, I was like, oh, I do get a lot of questions that end with am I normal? Maybe I'm just, uh, I'm just like a baby advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe but, people know not to take that question to me anymore. They've learned not to ask. <laughs> right, true. But I mean, you always tell people like it is and, and you give people very direct and actionable advice, which I love. I'm curious what you are seeing now. If you're not seeing the am I normal, where have things shifted? It's all situational ethics. It's I, I wished I had coined the... Um, AITA acronym. I've coined a lot of acronyms and gotten a lot of phrases and new words into the, you know, into the culture, into the English language. Um, but I get a lot of, I did this, they did that. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's the A word in, in this situation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I wrote, started writing it, it was much more of a sex advice column. And there wasn't such a thing as Google and every sex act or fetish or interest or even, you know, relationship model, didn't have its own wiki page, and now they do. So people don't need to ask me what a particular kind of toy is or how to perform a particular kind of sex act that they may have heard of because they have wiki and they have Google and there's a million online manuals. So all the sure. questions now are really weighing in um, relationship conflicts where often no one is the you know, A-I-T-A stands for am I the, <laughs> and often it's the case that no one's the A word. Everyone's just <laughs> wanting what they want in there and, and their wants are in conflict. And how do you resolve that? How do you negotiate mm -hmm. that? And relationships are ongoing negotiations where you make compromises, you come to resolutions, they work for a while, and then they maybe the wheels come off and you need to tune up or you need to make new compromises, sometimes accommodations. And a relationship really is, I think a relationship is a story that two people tell together about who they are, not as individuals, but who they are as a pair. Hmm. And that story can get complicated uh, and may need revisions or new chapters. And whether you can continue to write your story together is the question that, or want to, is the question people wrestle with. Yeah, for sure. And 
and for a lot of my listeners, the same is in, in dating. They're wrestling with the question of how, how do I do this? How do I do dating? That's another thing that's, it's not, it's not really Googleable, but I always say on the show that dating is a set of learned skills. We have this belief, like we're supposed to just know, we should know how to interact. We should know how to build a relationship, right? We should know how to text, like both when, when I started this podcast and certainly when you started the Savage Love Cast, texting was not the primary mode of communication in dating and relationships. And now it is. And so we have, we wanted the efficiency. We liked developing technology to support us in being faster, being able to communicate anytime, day or night. But at the same time, it created a whole other set of issues. Yeah, text is torture because you can't see someone's facial expression. It's hard to tell when someone's being sardonic or ironic. And we all have been there where we sat there staring at an ambiguous text, wondering, you know, taking it the wrong way or gaming out all the ways it could possibly be taken. And we wouldn't have that problem if that was an in-person interaction or even on the telephone, listening to the sound of someone's voice. Um, Things can seem harsh in a text that, you know, if somebody is saying it in a gentle way, it wouldn't seem so harsh. But I, I actually completely agree with you that dating is a skill set that unfortunately each of us has to learn through trial and error. And it helps to have a coach. It helps to have somebody in your corner. It helps to have friends. You can, you know, ask for their input if they've observed you with, you know, dating. And if they're not um, an idiot. <laughs> and if they're not an idiot, yeah, beware. Uh, but sometimes you just have to to learn as you go. And unfortunately in that process, like you're going to get hurt. You're probably going to hurt other people without malicious intent. Um, and you're going to want to be forgiven and you have to, there's no being forgiven without giving forgiveness. Mm. Everyone wants to be forgiven and we all have such a hard time forgiving. And if we live in an economy where it's all uh, demand and no supply when it comes to forgiveness, we're all going to be miserable. Oh my gosh. That actually makes me think of an interview that I heard you do with our friend of the show, Anna Sale, on death, sex, and money, where you were talking about cheating and what (laughs) you you talked about that moment of forgiveness. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase because I'm not listening to the interview right now, but you said something like, you always say, when you are with someone, I would, you would take a bullet for them. Like you would take a bullet for your partner. And you said to Anna, non-monogamy is that bullet. Like someone cheating on you is that bullet. And no one, let's not conflate non-monogamy and cheating. You're right, 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 right. Monogamy, everyone kind of knows what monogamy is. It's these two people only have sex with each other. Non-monogamy is a spectrum. You know, a non-monogamous relationship can be unethical. It could be somebody cheating. Um, there are a lot of ethical monogamous, non-monogamous relationships out there where there's some accommodation uh, around outside sex, or maybe it's polyamorous and there's actually dating other people. Non-monogamy isn't cheating and cheating isn't non-monogamy. It's also possible to cheat in the context of a non-monogamous relationship. All non-monogamous relationships, like monogamous relationships, have rules. And it's possible for somebody to violate the, you know, the rules of their non-monogamous relationship and betray their partner that they're in was supposed to be an ethically non-monogamous relationship with. You know, my point around monogamy is that, and this is not to tell everyone to be non-monogamous. It's for everyone to have, who wants a monogamous relationship to have realistic expectations. Cheating happens. And how are you going to feel about it when it does happen? And if we tell ourselves that cheating is unforgivable, and it's not something a relationship can survive, then we will experience it as unforgivable and not something our relationship can survive when it happens to us. And anybody who says it can't happen to them or they would never do it is whistling past the world's most densely populated graveyard. Hmm. And I think we need a more forgiving attitude towards monogamy is literally the only thing we expect people to do perfectly throughout their entire lives. If they want to be regarded as literally any good at it at all, you can be, you know, a gold medal, gold medal winning snowboarder and fall down and get up and they don't take your gold medals away. You know, if you are in a monogamous relationship with someone for 50 years and they cheated on you once, did they never love you? Or were they good at monogamy and fell? Mm. 
I think that person might have been good at monogamy. And I don't say that to like talk people out of wanting monogamy or making monogamous commitments. I say that to the people who have a monogamous commitment. Don't walk away from it because somebody else was human and failable in regards to this. People are human and failable in regards to everything. But this is the one thing that we expect and demand perfection uh, from our partners and we're not going to get it. So that's an unreasonable expectation. Yeah. Well, we have so many unreasonable expectations. <laughs> but you know what Anne Lamott says, expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not big on expectations, but you know, I'm in a committed monogamous relationship and that works for me, but on the show I'm always talking about how people have to design their own dating destiny or, you know, relationship future. And I don't just blindly accept because monogamy was the norm for so long or the norm for my parents or whatever stories that we've taken in. I don't assume that that is true for my listeners. And actually, I work with OkCupid as their official dating coach, and we've seen there's been a major increase in people identifying as non-monogamous in their mm -hmm. dating profiles. And isn't that great? Because then, you know, if more people who know what they want is a non-monogamous relationship identify themselves as wanting a non-monogamous relationship, then the people who want a monogamous relationship are going to find themselves in what's supposed to be a monogamous relationship with someone who doesn't actually want that. You yeah. know, we want to live in a world where we self-sort a little bit more aggressively when it comes to monogamy and non-monogamy. And everybody, you know, it used to be that everybody was, everybody wanted monogamy because that's what good people wanted and that's what everybody should want. So everybody pretended that that's what they did want or convinced themselves that that's what they did want and then discovered in a committed monogamous relationship that that wasn't what they did want after all. And then how do you retroactively negotiate the terms of that relationship, which is hard, people tend to avoid that conversation and find it easier to cheat. And then the person who wanted monogamy and could do it winds up devastated. Mm. How do you begin that conversation if you, let's say, let's say you're not years down the road in a relationship. Let's say you're, you're dating and you're early in the relationship and maybe you've never had a non-monogamous relationship before, but it's something that you're curious about. How do you begin that? <laughs> well, there's certainly, you know, you could listen to this show and then say to your partner, I was listening to this podcast and, you know, they were talking about non-monogamy. We're a conversation starter, Dan. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. How do you feel? Now, it could be that you're, you know, the person you initiate that conversation is going to be, will say something like, I think that's wrong because that's what I'm supposed to think. And isn't that what you think? And is that's probably what you're trying to find out for me is I think that's wrong, right? That's the right answer here. <laughs> right? And so you do have to have a like slightly deeper conversation about it. You know, I think one of the things that straight people have learned from gay people over the last like 30, 40 years is more straight people have gotten to know the gay people that they know is that for gay couples, uh, monogamy is a choice that they make consciously and together. It's not a default setting. It's a discussion. Um, and it's a discussion that can be revisited over time. You know, monogamy might be working for you right now in 10 years. Maybe it's not working for you in 20 years. Maybe you have kids and like this extended web of family and this shared history together, but you're not really having sex together anymore, but you still value and treasure and love your relationship and your marriage and your kids and your good parents and partners. And rather than be in conflict about sexual deprivation, you just want to say, you know what, whatever happens, happens, whatever you need to do. And, you know, be discreet and courteous and don't be cruel. Don't sleep with my sister. Don't sleep <laughs> with a coworker. Don't sleep with a neighbor. But like, obviously this doesn't define our connection anymore. Mm. And I say that, you know, when I say that people are sometimes like, you're obsessed with sex. Like, how is that me saying that a relationship can transcend the sex or desire that it initially brought two people together, me being obsessed with sex. <laughs> I, you know, I never want to say like, Terry and I are never going to break up because it just feels jinxy to say that. I'm too Irish Catholic right. to say that. Right. We've been together almost 30 years and 24 of those years have been open. And the last like 10 years have been kind of poly. Like Terry has a boyfriend, I have a boyfriend. It shocks me when, you know, sometimes I share that and people will look at me right in the eye and say, I could never do what you and Terry do because I value commitment too highly. And I'm like, how many decades? Been committed for 30 years. Do yeah. I have to be married to this man yeah. before I get some credit for that commitment that exists? 
And often the next thing out of somebody's mouth who literally, this has happened more than once, I could never do what you guys do because I value commitment too highly. All four of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. So you're committed to monogamy. But you're not committed to any of the morons who married you. <laughs> like I'm committed to Terry and it was monogamy that we, you know, we were monogamous for many years and it was monogamy that like we had conversations about and then what non-monogamy would look like and openness and there have been different stages. And, you know, I, I said a, a minute ago, a relationship is a compromise and it's a compromise that you're constantly kind of renegotiating so that you can stay happy together. And no one's happy when they're told, uh, you know, that job you took, that thing you agreed to, that way you felt in 1998, you have to feel that way now. You have to have that job now. Mm. No one wants to live forever 30 years ago, right? Uh, yeah. And so who we are now, how we function now, how we love each other now is very different than how we loved each other 30 years ago. And it would be Anyway, even if we pretended we felt the same way, we would experience each other differently because it's been decades together. And there's deeper meanings and there's different meanings that come in time. And something can be more or less important that, you know, something can be terribly important at first and become less important in time. That doesn't make you less important to each other. Mm. And sexual exclusivity, I really think was very important to us at the start. It really laid a foundation and became less important over time. And then it became a stressor. It became, you know, being sexually exclusive became something that wasn't bringing us together. It was pulling us apart. Oh. It was strain on our relationship, which is why we renegotiated and are doing not what would be right for everybody, but what's right for us. And I fully respect people who are monogamous who are doing what's right for them. And, you know, I also know, you know, and it's not like uh, we went from monogamous to non-monogamous. That's the arc everyone, that's the track everyone's going to be on. I know people who were open in their relationships early or for a time and are now closed and monogamy is right for them again or now. And it's whatever works for those two people or, you know, in the case of me and my husband, those four people. Y'all, can you believe we have the Dan Savage here with us? The author of Savage Love from A to Z, Advice on Sex and Relationships, Dating and Mating, Exes and Extras, which you can find at your local bookstore or on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Do you, do you believe that we have Dan Savage, the host of the Savage Lovecast, which you can listen to wherever you're listening to Dates and Mates right now? We have Dan Savage, who's on Instagram, at Dan Savage. And Dan is going to stick around and answer your questions with me in just a moment. This is what we're tackling. First, I put too much pressure on myself to find a guy that meets my standards. I think I'm hindering myself from finding a match. What should I do? And any advice on detaching meaning from hookups that fizzle out or wanting them to be more than they are? Any advice? Any advice? All Dan Savage and I have is advice. We'll tell you what it is in just a moment. I am holding your questions in my hot little hands. <laughs> and Dan and I are here to help. Me. So we'll just kick it off, Dan, with our first question from a listener uh, who sent me a DM on Instagram. I love your podcast. I've really been enjoying it. And especially because I am finally dating again after not really dating for the last, oh, I don't know, decade or so of my life. So I recently had an experience with a guy that I went on two dates with who I really enjoyed a lot. And he was clear from the start that he, he's like really looking for like a serious commitment. Like he's looking for a husband essentially. And you know, I want that too. But what kept on coming up for me was like, like how you go into dating where both of you are looking for like a similar long-term committed relationship. Like you both have your eyes on that similar prize but not be holding up the measuring stick of could I be with you forever? Like at every moment, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it just feels like so much pressure. And, and that to me doesn't seem like the ideal reading ground, if you will, for discovering whether or not someone might fit that bill. Does that make sense? Thank you again for what you do. I really value it. And I'm, I'm certain that I'm not alone. Dan, it's funny because I start all of my dating coaching clients off with mindset and figuring out both 
who you are, what you bring into the relationship, and what your relationship goal is. But I think there's a line between having clarity in your relationship goal and having that be like a ticking clock in your relationship. You have to be able to compartmentalize. You have to be able to – you've come to agreement about ultimate goals. You'd both, you're both open to a serious commitment to marriage. And now you have to set that aside, knowing you're both on the same page, and just enjoy each other and live in the moment. And sometimes that's easier said than done, particularly people are anxious about wanting to find a partner and are obsessing about it a little too much. But you just have to be able to, you know, walk into gum, do both at the same time. <laughs> you have to be able to like live in the moment, enjoy this person. Dating is vetting. Like you're going to figure out whether this person is someone who could be your husband and he's going to figure out if you're someone who could be his. And that takes time and spending time together. And it's almost like the both of you being open to marriage with a potential future partner. All right, that's a baseline. Now what? Now everything else yeah. about whether you can, you know, you enjoy the taste of his spit or you enjoy spending time together and you can tolerate his bad habits and he can tolerate your bad habits. Um, and that just means making time and space for this person in this relationship. And whether they're husband material and you are too, coincidentally, whether Yahtzee that happens, <laughs> that will reveal itself. And you don't want to rush that. Yeah, that the timing thing, that is a factor. And I do get, I feel a lot of anxiety from my clients over this ticking clock of, you know, the well, non-renewable resource. Yeah. <laughs> There's all, everyone has a ticking clock. You know, if you're 50 and somebody says, I need 40 years to figure this out, that's too long. <laughs> right? And True. if you're you know, whatever age you are and someone tells you they can figure this out in a weekend. That's too fast. <laughs> that's too fast. Like, where's just right? And for different people, it, it falls in different places. I wouldn't let my, you know, the man I am now married to, I wouldn't tell him, I wouldn't let him call himself my boyfriend at first. And for a while, we didn't say I love you to each other. We started saying, there's something I want to say, but I'm not going to. And what we both demonstrated to each other at those moments was a certain kind of patience and emotional restraint, and that we valued each other enough not to rush things yeah, and to yeah. telegraph to each other that that's what we were doing. Like, you're a real candidate, which means, you know, let's go through the, oh God, I'm torturing my metaphors. I've been <laughs> sick for a week and I'm not getting any sleep. You know, if you're a real candidate, there's a primary process and dating is that primary process <laughs> and you're going to get vetted. And they're going to vet you. Right. And you if you rush through that, it's not it's not sometimes it works out. Some you know, I know people who got married in 2 weeks and were together for the rest of their lives. That is a thing that can happen. That is statistically less likely that those relationships are far likelier to end poorly, but it can happen. Yeah, and if if you are able to express what you want at all phases of the relationship. Because I think a lot of times people don't even have that clarity. So it sounds like for this listener, the other person is is hitting that note a little bit too hard for them. But like, I remember even in phases of my relationship, like when my my husband, before we were married, you, spoiler alert, you know <laughs> how the story ends, <laughs> but uh, he was living with another with a roommate the roommate was moving out and so he was like maybe I should give up my apartment and move in with you and I was like hold on a second I'm not moving in with anyone unless for me the rule was this is a step towards marriage and I don't I don't need a ring on my finger I don't need a firm commitment but I need to know we're walking the same path so I said you're not moving in now you're gonna take some time to think about it and if you feel that you are on that same path we can talk about this again. And, and then you had to make your best guess about whether he was lying to you or not. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I am taking a step down this path with you. True. But he did he took he took like three months. He took enough time. He he didn't end up leaving that apartment. And then he took the time and when he came back to me, I felt like this was enough time for you to make make a decision that was really authentic. And it ended up working out. And we lived in a uh, a studio. My she moved into my studio. I had I had a walk-in closet. <laughs> I had I had so much space for myself and for two people. It was so small. And I thought if we can make it through this, we can make it through anything. You know, if two people are right for each other, it, it rarely is the case that taking it a little slow, more slowly, 
doomed the relationship. Yeah. If two people are wrong for each other and they rushed into a commitment, man, re- that realization after you've rushed into a premature commitment that you made a mistake and when it's hard to extricate yourself, you want to beware of that. You know, my relationship before I met my husband, we moved in with each other right away and then it was a bad scene. And I kind of overcorrected with my husband. You know, he was at my apartment every night. I was mm. going to move. We talked it, you know, his lease was ending also kind of like you and your husband. We talked about whether <laughs> we should move in with each other. And I was just like, it feels too soon. And he was like, okay, I will get my own apartment. And the joke was he got another apartment that he was never in. <laughs> but it Paying demonstrated <laughs> to me a kind of emotional maturity and also concern for my comfort yeah. and the pace I wanted to move at, that he was willing to do that mm. and to wait. And then, you know, after that, we got, we bought our first condo together and went in both feet. And the rest is history. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the previous <laughs> relationship, like, I have a great feeling about this guy. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take a risk. And boy, I regretted that one leisure. But see, every experience leads to the next one. So you learned from that and then you were able to move forward differently with Terry. Okay. I have one more question for you, Dan. I will read it to you. This is from a listener named R. She says, I am looking for a life partner, but I also crave sex and find myself getting a bit lost after starting a fling with someone new. Do you have any tips for generating sexual satisfaction, not just self-pleasure, and being more in tune with our sexual selves without relying on a partner? Also, any advice on detaching meaning from hookups that fizzle out or wanting them to be more than they are? Oh my God, that's so many questions. It's so many questions, but I feel like they're all related because like she says, I crave sex and I, I get lost after starting a fling with someone new. But then she's also saying she wants to detach meaning from hookups that fizzle out. And she's like placing this meaning on the hookup. And this is like a dissonance that I see coming up a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to be like this. I want to be sexually free, but like I keep getting attached. So let's take that part first. And then we can talk about the self pleasure (laughs) aspect. Well, you got to know yourself, right? If hooking up with a lot of different people leaves you feeling drained or not great, well, that's a sign that maybe hooking up with lots of randos isn't for you. And if you're the kind of person who obsesses about, I guess, the rejection that's implicit in a hookup that fizzled out over time or a regular hookup that fizzled out over time, man, you're going to want to maybe hold back. There's no guarantee that holding back means a a new hookup or relationship won't fizzle out. Um, A lot of them do. Sometimes people, they do and people are married and they stay together anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And the sexual tension drains away. It seems like this person having a hard time balancing the desire for sex, novelty, adventure with attaching too much meaning to, you know, these relationships that are transitory or ephemeral by their very nature. And you can have sex and sexual adventure. And it also seemed like part of the question was like, how do I have solo sex that is meaningful and that how can I meet my own needs without exposing myself to the, the hurt that comes, you know, or the way I obsess over things that didn't go anywhere. Well, invest in toys, invest in yourself, invest in your own pleasure, you find somebody that you really vibe with. There's a lot of different ways now to get a kind of the kind of affirmation that people used to only be able to get from partnered sex, like affirmation of your own desirability. You know, we talk about all the bad things that social media does for us and the distraction it can be. I've had some meaningful relationships, you know, friendships, not relationships, with people that I met on social media where it was just sort of like banter and then we like would get a little deeper and talk about our relationships and talk about who we were. And then there was just something about their presence that was initially sparked by a a sexual attraction and they're remaining, you know, with me, even as like it became something else that was affirming and arousing in a way. Like every time I get a message from one of these guys, I'm like, Oh, uh, (laughs) that's nice. (laughs) So how can you, like I would say to the caller, if like a lot of hookups, a lot of different guys, it's how you've been seeking 
sexual satisfaction and affirmation, how do you disaggregate those? Where else mm. can you get affirmation of your desirability? Well, all over the internet. Hmm. Where else can you get sexual satisfaction? At your own hands. And it's really important to be skilled at pleasuring yourself because anybody you're with as a partner is going to rely on your cues and what you communicate to them about your pleasure as the guide to them giving you pleasure. You know, there's hmm. something really hot about somebody who takes their pleasure from you and on you. That can be very affirming and satisfying. Most people need guidance on, yeah. on how to please you. And you knowing how to please yourself, I think is really important, especially for women and other female-bodied people to hear. Men arrive at partnered sex, usually experts on their own orgasms, experts on their own <laughs> pleasure, because men have been masturbating for four years, five years, eight years, 10 years before they arrive at partnered sex. Far too many women arrive at partnered sex not having ever masturbated or not having really become experts on pleasing themselves so that they can help somebody else please them. Yeah. You know, the I hear from women who are like, I had sex for the first time. I'm 19 years old and I didn't get, it wasn't pleasurable for me. And it's like, well, you were with some 19, 20 year old boy. And it lasted 32 seconds. Yeah, it lasted 32 <laughs> Two seconds. Two pumps and <laughs> he never, you know, he didn't touch my he didn't touch me in the way I need to be yeah. touched. Well, yeah. did you tell him? Did you show him? Can yeah. you do you know how you know a guy, most men, males, know where their orgasmic plateaus are, know where the point of orgasmic inevitability comes for them. They arrive at partnered sex expert on their own mm -hmm. pleasure. And too many women arrive at partnered sex expecting some guy to, to be instantly experts on their sexual pleasure. And that's kind of not how it works. No, I think, yeah, we need to make, first of all, we need to be, we need to make asking for consent sexy. Because I think it is, right? Like, can I touch you there? Is this okay? Oh, like, does my this God. Good? Right? Why do, Why have we made it like, oh, well, that's the unsexy thing. And just communicating, right, Dan? Like, Can like, I tell you this to the first guy who ever kissed me? Tell me. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, for, well, problematically, he was the boyfriend of a girlfriend of mine. Oh. But setting that aside for a Highly moment. problematic. But <laughs> also problematic. I was 16, and I think he was 23. Also um, problematic. But at we the time, very hot. Yeah. Totally consensual, and I think the age of consent in Illinois was 16, so nothing. Look, I got stories too, Dan. Don't, don't even worry no, about it. You're safe here. <laughs> no power over me. There was no exploitation going sure. on. Um and we were hanging out and my friend left and we were hanging out and there was just this tension in the room and I didn't want, uh, you know, I was gay and closeted and I'm like, am I misreading this? Am I engaging in some sort of wishful thinking? And I just like hung back. And at one point we were like sitting next to each other on the couch and he looked at me and said, what would you do if I kissed you? He didn't say, can I kiss you? He didn't lunge at me and try to kiss me. He asked me a question that had to have an answer. And it, was, it, was a, it wasn't like, can I kiss you, yes or no, right now? It invited a conversation. Like, what would you do if I kissed you? Very and good. it was the sexiest thing, even you know, decades later, I think a man has ever said to me. And it was somebody asking, you know, people would say to me, like, it's not sexy to ask somebody to kiss them. It's like, no, 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 I know that's not true. Because mm -hmm. I still think about that moment. Yeah. When, this impossibly hot 23-year-old Irish guy with black shaggy hair and big blue eyes looked at me and said, what would you do if I kissed you? And, and that's, said, such a, that's such shatter a- Shatter into 100,000 million pieces. <laughs> I don't remember what I said. I remember what he said. <laughs> right? Isn't it funny, like those moments where you're like, it, you just have like the certain pieces that stand out. But what you just said, Dan, that can be applied to so many other situations in dating and relationships to just like get curious and say like, what if, what, let's say, what if. And that's something that I think straight people can learn from gay people. I like to say that gay people are better at sex than straight people to, to be provocative. Now, hold on a minute, no. <laughs> I know, but you know why we're better at sex? It's not because we're magic. It's because when 
a woman and a man go to bed together for the first time when they get to consent, not always, but almost always at the end of the conversation about sex, because everything that's going to happen next is assumed. Mm. Like it's going to be vaginal intercourse, Mm. maybe some foreplay, maybe this, maybe that, but PIV, when (laughs) two dudes go to bed together for the first time and they get to consent, it is the beginning of a whole conversation about what's going to happen. Interesting. if there's anything straight, you know, we took marriage from you guys. If there's anything straight people could steal from from gay people, uh, I call them the four magic words. Like a man and a man are going to go to bed together for the first time. One or the other, sometimes both at the same time will say, what are you into? Mm-hmm. And that's such an empowering question. Like particularly when I was a young gay man, to be asked that question was very empowering because I could say, I could ask for what I wanted. I could say what I didn't want. You know, sometimes asking for what I wanted ruled out everything I didn't ask for. Sometimes I had to be a bit clearer about that. But it was empowering in in a way that, you know, as somebody having sex with men, I think women need to be asked that question and not be under this pressure to that that agreeing to be sexual or or even to have sex is agreeing to penetration because penetration is a whole other level. Mm. I say to straight guys all the time, if every time you said yes to sex, you got penetrated, you would probably say yes less often than you might. Dan, you're like opening up a whole other conversation and <laughs> we're like coming to the end here. But I, mind blown, and like I learned so much from you. So I am just, I'm just so grateful for you spending time with me and with the Dates and Mates audience here. And if if people have more specific questions and want to go a little deeper, no pun intended, Savage Lovecast is the best. So thank you. Thank you very much. And and to, to prep for today, I, I listen mostly to history podcasts because I'm a royalty geek. I listened to a bunch of your podcasts and I really enjoyed your POV and perspective. And I'd be happy to come back uh, again sometime. And I will have you on my show too. We will make this a mutual love fest. I hope you enjoyed episode 446 of Dates and Mates. If you have a question, like one of the ones that we answered today, remember, there are no stupid questions, only stupid people. No, just kidding. There's no more X. <laughs> there are no stupid questions. And if there's something that's on your mind, it's probably something similar to what another listener is dealing with. So you can DM me at Demona Hoffman on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also see short clips of the show and get more advice on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Damona Hoffman on all of the platforms. And even if you don't have a question yet, I would love for you to be following and become a part of my community. Our phone lines are also open 24-7 at 424-246-6255. You can text me or leave me a voice memo there. We'll be back again next Tuesday with clinical sexologist and dating coach, Maisha Battle. She will be talking about her brand new book, This is Supposed to be Fun! how to find joy in hooking up, settling down, and everything in between. Until then, I wish you happy dating.